You're listening to Saturday Morning Rewind with Tim Nidell. Let's go back in time when turtles roam the sewers of New York. A masked duck protected the streets of St. Canard. I am the and knowing was half the battle. Yo, yo! It's time for Saturday Morning Rewind. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Tim, your host of Saturday Morning Rewind. Hope everybody had a terrific holiday season. I know I sure did. I also took a break from doing interviews to celebrate with my family, so I didn't have a new interview to play for you guys for this episode. So I'm going to reach back into my archives to an interview I did with Bill Ratner almost two years ago from my other podcast, the Rock Bottom Podcast. In this interview, we talk strictly G.I. Joe, how we got started in the career, that kind of stuff. Uh, terrific, terrific guy. Bill Ratner was a, a great guy to talk to. It's a really great listen. Hope you guys enjoy it. But before I go into it, I really want to ask you guys, please, if you enjoy the podcast and you're listening on iTunes, please, please rate me on iTunes, please. I need some more reviews out there. It really helps out in the iTunes rankings and that kind of stuff. And it's nice to know that people are out there listening and enjoy it. So please do that if you're listening to iTunes. If you do someone else, like Stitcher, please, you know, write a comment, whatever, subscribe. Um, before I get into the interview, if you don't know who Bill Ratner is, he played Flint on the original G.I. Joe. Here's a little sample of his voice from that cartoon. Let's tell Mom it was Billy's mistake. You're making the mistake. Flint! Anyone can have an accident, but lying makes it worse. But Mom will be upset. She'll be even more upset if you lie. And how would you feel if Billy got punished? Face up to what you've done. Don't take the easy way out. We'll tell her we did it. Remember, it's better to tell the truth. And that's no lie. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. All right, so without further ado, here is my interview with Bill Ratner. In like 1980 five or six, like the second or third year of the show, where there would be like 30 people waiting in the studio. Oh, wow. And then, you know, suddenly these sort of old character actors, and I mean, they just, because the thing got so successful, and the toys were selling so massively because uh, Reagan had just deregulated television, so you could advertise the action figures within the show for the first time since television was created. Anyway. Um, I will let you ask. <laughs> no, yet you're on a good start from there. Um, I, I heard you tell a story about um, something about the old GI Joes, how they switched over the voice box. What was that again? There was an organization, and I, and I have to look it up on the internet again. Um, that uh, in the, I think in the uh, late '80s, uh, when the f- the first year that voice chips came out successfully in toys. And I don't know if you pulled a string or pressed a button, but the, uh, this organization went into Toys R Us in large department stores, apparently in a couple of places around the country, and purchased over 150, something like 250 Barbies with voice chips and uh, Joe dolls, various characters from the Joe team, and took them back to their dormitories and their science labs at school and swapped the voice chips. <laughs> oh, and then they repackaged them. This was sort of the opposite of stealing. Brought, having paid for them, brought them back in backpacks <laughs> uh, into uh, you know the Toys R Us and Macy's, put them back on the shelves. Wow. And so little kids would get uh, G.I. Joe's 
uh, and open them up on Christmas morning, and G.I. Joe would giggle and say, I'm not very good at math. <laughs> and Bobby would say, all right, Lady J, Cobra's on their way, we can't bring up the laser threat weapon system. <laughs> They're like toy terrorists. Yeah, in fact, I think I think I looked, I Googled it not so many months ago. I did someplace in my uh, safari, uh, but uh, I think I said something like, Google something like toy terrorists or uh-huh. G.I. Joe Barbie boy swap, and the story was still up in, in a bunch of newspapers. Organization had a name and everything. Yeah, I, actually, I wanted to start off with a, with a quick story about you know, I'm a big fan of G.I. Joe, and um, years ago, more than 25 years ago, I used to sit in the living room and record it with my little tape recorder and get my favorite actors, my favorite voice actors, which was you as Flint, and Thank I you. used to re- record your voice and then go back to my bedroom and pretend that I was like some kind of late-night talk show host and I would yeah. interview you. <laughs> And now here I am, you know, 26, 27 years later, doing doing exactly what I did. And so you were only like 25 years old back then. Exactly. That's great. That's, you know, I, actually, I did a volunteer thing at a high school here. Uh-huh. And this little Vietnamese girl, 17 or 18, she, I think she was a senior, came up to me, and she had a very slight accent. And she started naming all of these characters on G.I. Joe. And I said, were you like a production assistant on the show or something? And she said, no, I... I, that's how I learned English. She wow. came to Vietnam when she was like eight years old and uh, sat and fell in love with G.I. Joe for some reason and, and Transformers and listened. I don't know if she had a VCR was able to play things back, but she learned English that way. Wow. And she knew all the uh, the actors' names. <laughs> so did you do anything like that when you were a kid? You know, a pretend... Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. I, in fact, uh, my first memory of television, this is way early in the 50s when, when not all Americans had television sets, but people were buying them very, very quickly, um, kind of like the Internet in like 1995 or something, where uh, you know a third of American homes had televisions. And uh, my father bought one one afternoon after kindergarten. He literally showed me, he said, all right, just twist this knob and just wait, you know, and wait and wait, and it comes on, and then when you're finished watching, twist it the other way, wait for the click, and there you go, have a good time. And so I was so excited, the next day I came home by myself after kindergarten, turned it on TV and watched some kids' show, and the uh, kids' show host um, ended the segment, and then an announcer, a voiceover guy, came on, and he said the following words, this commercial message will be 60 seconds long. And why they had to announce that, or why they felt they had to, or whether it was an FCC requirement, or TV was so young, I have no idea. And on came, like, you know, Oldsmobile for 1952, or whatever it was. I mean, I remember the visuals of black and white television commercial of a car with a happy American family with 2.5 children in it, you know, rolling to the rolling hills, waving to the camera. And I sort of held my breath for 60 seconds. I thought, this is the first. It was the first moment in my life at which what a minute was. Yeah. Uh, uh, the duration of 60 seconds was absolutely rock solid, clear to me. And I ran into my mom and I said, Mom, I know what a minute is. She said, well, it's 60 seconds. How would you know that? A man on TV. So I was really very aware, and this I was probably five and a half, of, of um, TV. 
TV voices. And so I wandered around in that same period of time with one of my father's Gillette razor blade dispensers. Fortunately, no <laughs> blades in there when I cut my fingers. Uh-huh. Which, which actually, if you had it in your hand, it's probably in a museum somewhere, looks like a tiny uh, radio device of some sort. Uh-huh. It, has a, it has a piece of metal that sort of imitates an antenna. And I used to wander around at that age um, pretending that I was broadcasting. We're walking outside now with our rubber <laughs> boots. It appears to be snowing. My mother has shut the door and told me to go and play alone in the backyard. We're heading toward the garage now. We don't know who's inside. So, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, yeah, I did do that kind of stuff. I think every kid, you know, in one way or another, sort of imitates, you know, it's, it's I mean, this, this is how, you know, you and I ended up in this weird uh, area of interest uh-huh. through, you know, sort of having it filter into our brains. And then uh, some of us decide to imitate it and then go a little farther. Yeah, how, how so did that... How did that step into the business actually work for you? Well, uh, my father was in advertising, and uh, he was an advertising exec. And uh, so he would bring me to work, you know, when I was 10, 11, 12. And uh, he died when I was 14, but I, I thought, well, I'm going to try to get a job. Oh, it'll be easy, you know, they'll out of pity, they'll get me a job at the ad agency. And so I worked for Campbell Muffin Advertising in Minneapolis, which was a large, it was at the time the biggest ad agency west of the Mississippi River. And um, at 14, and then throughout high school, off and on, uh, a senior in high school, I rode my bike downtown and, uh, and went to work and then through the summer. And a large, large ad agencies, at the time anyway, had every conceivable facility. They had recording booths for announcers. They had recording rooms for small orchestras and singers to sing jingles for TV and radio commercials. They had uh, artists in their studios doing airbrush painting and you know, pen and ink and photographers' dark rooms. There was a full media universe. And and as, a, as an errand boy, you could stick your nose into every conceivable corner. And then I snuck into the seminars that were intended for the account executives. And, uh, you know, eventually got tossed out, and then I asked permission, no, please take me on me. I'm just a dumb high school student. And... Um, was a journalism major, did not do well in school, you know, I mean, just messed up, and uh, ended up doing some theater later, and then and, uh, really it took quite some time to get back to commercial media. At, at about age 30, I took a sales job at a radio station with the proviso that I could voice some of the spots, and uh, they were so hard up for somebody to work for so little money that uh, they took me, and uh, I ended up spending more time in the studio just cutting and doing weird things and, and uh, ultimately got a uh, job on the day shift of this beautiful music station that played like, you know, horrible instrumental cover tunes of little <laughs> songs, and Rolling Stones songs, but uh, hey, it was a start. So um, that's, just, that's sort of the, the short answer to your question. Now, would you say you had a lot of good support when you started doing voiceover from other, from other actors or other people that you knew? only support I had was, that fortunately, uh, my dad, when he died, had left, you know, a little bit of money. I mean, mm-hmm. he was not a millionaire. He was a businessman. He uh, was not a rich guy. But I had enough money when I was about 27 to start taking voiceover workshops. And, 
you know, I have a few thousand bucks in the bank, and, and so <clears> I, when I came to Hollywood, I'd gotten the good advice from the sales guy at the radio station up in Northern California, you should take voiceover workshops, here's the name of a guy. And so I went, and the guy had worked for Dick Clark, and he'd been a big program director, and he'd been a sort of a famous personality in St. Louis, but he had fallen on hard times and gotten into drugs, and so he would teach the class, going off into the bathroom, coming back, start talking like this, all, all, all uh, very quickly, uh, on certain uh, nasal stimulants. And, uh, <laughs> but he was probably a bright guy, and he loved the business, and he had interesting friends, and in terms of support, that was really the only support I had with the fact that, uh, fortunately, there were a couple thousand dollars left at the bank, mm -hmm. and I was able to pay for voiceover workshops. And um, after that, it was really uh, up to me. I mean, I had I knew no one in Hollywood. I yeah. knew no one in the business whatsoever. And so it was really a numbers game. Um, getting an agent took quite some time, and I did you know, I did some odd things. I took little display ads out in a couple of magazines with a weird photograph of me. I noticed that in Variety and, and The Hollywood Reporter, which are two kind of tacky, not-so-brilliantly-written magazines in Hollywood, but they're heavily subscribed to online, especially these days, by uh, film and television executives and, and distribution people and anybody associated with the business of film or television and uh, maybe a subscriber base of about 80,000 people was like a small-town newspaper, but these are the decision-makers who, who create television and film. And uh, I noticed that in those magazines, uh, actors would advertise with their pretty little head shot with their nice you know, white teeth and their hair well done. <laughs> and I thought, these things look so boring that I had a girlfriend's uh, brother who was taking photo classes at some school uh, lie me down on the floor in a pair of boots and jeans and a leather jacket with my hand and my chin. And it says, looks relaxed, doesn't he? Well, when this guy stands up to a microphone, he works and works right. Listen for him Fridays, February 17th on ABC TV's Heroes of Rock and Roll. And I had just lucked out and gotten like two lines on a on an ABC special about rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a big deal at all, but I made it look like a big deal. And actually got calls from agents so it's all I, I kind of I think I learned early the magic of smoke and mirrors uh -huh. which is the magic of advertising is it is it true or is it untrue no it's true but this is the most important thing in the world I mean the, the marketing of GI Joe was 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 absolutely brilliant yeah it was it made it made it seem like an absolute cultural phenomenon and thus, it became a cultural phenomenon in terms of you know numbers of people watching. Yeah, because uh, if if they didn't make toys for every character, who knows how many kids wouldn't have gotten involved in the show at, in the first place? That was the brilliance of it. I mean, uh -huh. you know, of course, that that the you, you can go on eBay and buy the original GI Joe from the fifties, early sixties, who was a you know like a large Barbie, uh -huh. kind of a, you know with five-day growth of beard and a cigar sticking out. You could take his helmet off. You could take his jacket off. You could change his boots. You could buy little accessories like that for him. He had a gun, probably different guns, you know, a forty-five automatic and, you know, and, uh, and, a, and a M1 rifle. And, uh, but then years, and there was a, you know, there was a comic book, G.I. Joe, series that, that I think lasted for years, 
Uh, I know a G.I. Joe was around uh, during the Korean War. I don't know about World War II. Um, and then G.I. Joe sort of fell out of favor for whatever reason, and uh, maybe because of the 60s and uh, the Vietnam War, and people weren't interested in it, this old-fashioned character. Uh, who was not funny. He was just this kind of old-fashioned hero, war hero guy. And some brilliant soul at uh, Sunbow Productions uh, uh, and Hasbro said, uh, probably Hasbro, said, gee, shouldn't we create, why don't we create five or six characters? Mm -hmm. So then they did the miniseries, the first miniseries, in about 82. Uh, And that did so well uh, they syndicated it. Uh, they sold it to individual stations, and and it did so well that they said, "Well, let's go into full production with the show." So the miniseries, which you can get on DVD, of I think five, I think they did five episodes. They may have done another five, and then they created uh, you know twenty six episodes a year for a couple of years. But and and just the number of characters multiplied, which. In, which, uh, you know, as far as creative was concerned, made it a more interesting show. And there are characters, there, you know, uh, black characters, Asian characters, more women, you know, just there's a lot of variety and, and uh, you know, characters with weird names. And, uh, the uh, economics of children's television, we sat down with a bunch of 13-year-old boys and said, if you guys had the money, if somebody just handed you the cash... And you uh, were told to buy only one of each uh, Joe action figure, you know, from vehicles to, to characters. How much do you think it would cost? And the, it would range from like thirteen to eighteen to twenty-one, twenty-two hundred dollars. And uh, we blew it because the script girl in the beginning, in the very first episode of passing scripts out to about ten of us, said, um, "Oh, the producers say that you should probably buy Hasbro stock." Why should we buy Hasbro stock for the TV show? Is it because we're going to sell the toys? No big deal. Well, <laughs> if not rich, we would have made some money. Uh-huh. Nobody, nobody paid any attention. You oh, wow. Hasbro executives. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you have any good stories you can tell me about your time, you know, either filming, you're not filming, but, you know, the recording sessions or any time while you're doing the G.I. Joe? Well, the most memorable was when a gentleman named Chuck McCann came in to play a character. And he was already in his early 60s, big Irishman with blonde hair. And I had known him uh, only from having made a motion picture that he, he wrote, produced, edited, directed with Rodney Dangerfield uh, as the head usher at a movie theater called The Projectionist. Chuck McCann played the character The Projectionist. It's kind of an odd cult film, much like Robert Downey's father's films. Mm-hmm. Robert Downey Sr. was a filmmaker, made three motion pictures, I think, in the 60s and 70s, and, and uh, not many people saw them, but they're sort of odd cult movies. And um, I was talking with someone about puppetry, and Chuck McCann looked at me with this very serious look on his face, said, puppetry, are you a puppeteer? I said, well, yeah, I messed around with puppetry. He said, yeah, I... I created uh, Rudy Kazuti and Fearless Fosdick. I said, wait a minute. You created Fearless Fosdick, the television show? And in the 50s, 
for 13 weeks only, fall uh, from September through through uh, up to Christmas. Uh, NBC Television Network aired uh, 13 weekly episodes of Fearless Fostic, which was a live marionette show about this odd detective who, who worked for Dick Tracy. He was a minor character in the Dick Tracy hmm. cartoon strip who had a girlfriend named Eunice Pimpleton with huge pimples on her face. And every time he would get shot by a bad guy, he would open up his shirt and you could see holes in the huge Swiss cheese holes in his chest. And he was always being shot by bad guys, chasing bad guys through you know crappy town buildings. And they built these sets that were kind of almost like film noir, like... Uh, you know, TV shows in the 50s, you know, Naked Gun and, and this and that. And, and um, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Again, I was five and a half years old and I watched this. I was hypnotized by it, by these weird, herky-jerky marionettes that look like dolls on, on Darvon or something uh, with strings that you could see fully dressed with guns coming out of their pockets. All right, you lousy creep, bang, 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 and smoke coming out of the little prop gun. And it was the wildest, most incredible thing I'd ever seen. And here I'm rocketing back in time. And then that Christmas, after Christmas, when I went back to school in January as a kindergartner, the show was no longer on. And I, I cried and I, <laughs> I freaked out. And my dad came home that night and I said, what happened? And he said, well... Uh, there's no accounting for taste in television. And, uh, uh, the quality won't necessarily out. Quality doesn't necessarily win. Sorry. Probably probably couldn't hold its advertisers. And um, so here I am at a G.I. Joe station about 1985 staring at this man. And I said, you created that show? He said, I wrote it. I directed it. I built all the marionettes. I had a few assistants. He said, I and I said, whatever happened to the marionettes? He said, I have them in my house uh, set up. I have a whole set in the basement, lights, everything. And I said, is there any chance that you would allow me to, you know, come over and see them? He said, yeah, sure, just call me up. And um, he was on the show. I can't remember his character's name. He, had, he was a recurring character for a few weeks, and then it was, that was it. And I called him, and I called him, and I called him, and uh, he would never return the call. Oh, man. And I said, well, I, am, I must have seemed like a pain in the butt or something. <laughs> told a couple of friends the story, and um, a man named Lorenzo Music, who was the voice of Garfield the Cat, yeah, and yeah. Years, years ago he was also the voice of Carl Near Doraman and Rhoda Bowles, Carl Near Doraman. Same thing happened to him. He knew Chuck, and Chuck said, yeah, come on over, I'll show you my bullets. And Lorenzo called him, called him, called him, and apparently he just was a very private guy who went in public would brag about his puppets but uh, when it came to answering the phone he never did <laughs> so that, I mean, that doesn't have a lot to do with G.I. Joe but uh, it's sort of the, the lore of children's television but I you know I, I think you know on this more serious level um, Wally Burr who's still alive in his 80s who was the youngest tank commander in World War II Captain Wally Burr was our director and he was directing uh, in a very new way. Most cartoons up to that time were directed with, you know, everybody can have a cartoon, silly voice, okay, you're really big, you're falling in a hole, oopsie. And he directed for psychological and emotional reality. And G.I. Joe was really the first show that had ever been directed that way. So those of us who, you know, are voiceover people and actors, uh, 
that was fine. Cartoon people had to get used to it because they were doing silly voices. And he said, no, 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 you're, you're, this is for real. You're a real guy. Somebody's firing weapons at you and you're lying in the jungle and, you, you know, worms and dirt are in your face. And um, so that, was, that made it really fun. But what was odd about it was you couldn't overlap dialogue like they do in television or mm -hmm. film where people are talking at the same time. What did you say? Well, I was talking about my then and then she did what? You had to be as real and naturalistic as possible and yet pause for the other actor to speak and pause after the other actor spoke okay. doing dialogue. And sometimes do it alone, sometimes record it alone. Usually they wanted everybody there. Uh -huh. But there'd be ten people, you know, lined up at the microphones all doing their very weird sort of you know, voodoo, waving their arms around. There was one guy uh, who looked like he was always cleaning his aura <laughs> with his fingers, and and that somehow would, would allow him to uh, speak. So uh, it's just the, the, the memories sort of blur because I probably did over a hundred sessions, but uh, they were uh, some of the most fun recording sessions I've ever done. Mainly because there were a lot of people there, and it was it was it was acting rather than announcing and uh, um, it was new and, and you know this thing was on TV and you know, it was really exciting and then recently you had a chance to relive the Flint character with Family Guy and Robot Chicken what was that like well Seth MacFarlane who I don't know uh, called my agent just on a, on a whim and for the uh, premiere episode of the fourth season when it was going back on to Fox it had been removed from TV, and then Fox said, wait a minute, we're going to bring it back in the fall of whatever, 90, whatever, whatever it was, 2004 or something. And uh, he called, happened to call a woman who was my agent and said, is, is the guy who did Flint uh, still alive? And she said, uh, yeah, and uh, we represent him. Oh, man, because he was like, you know, 8, 9, 10, 12 years old. And G.I. Joe was his favorite show, and he thought Flint was cool, and uh, so he wrote a part for Flint. And usually, especially with cartoons and games, they want you in the recording studio. Mm -hmm. They have a special way of recording it. The director is kind of doing some intense directing. Okay, take two louder, take three faster, take four a little more intense, take five a little angrier. And uh, the recording session for this the premiere episode, going back on Fox... Um, I couldn't show. I couldn't. I was booked. I couldn't. There's no way I could do it. And he said, "Well, all right. Well, just can you do it from your basement?" <laughs> and uh, he was on the phone with me and and uh, telling me his stories about about watching GI Joe. And so he created this episode where I didn't have a major role in the episode, just a minor part, catching kids drink, kids are drinking in the bathroom, and the vice principal catches them at a school dance drunk, and uh, Flint comes out of the bathroom stall saying, that's right, kids, over 375,000 people died of alcohol-related diseases just last year, and knowing is half the battle. <laughs> and then uh, Seth Green, who also is part of the show, Family Guy, said, well, I want him for my show. I used to watch G.I. <laughs> Joe, too. So I'm on a couple episodes of Robot Chicken, and my biggest regret was one summer I was heading off for vacation. And I booked the tickets and the whole thing and um, got an invitation to the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> Seth Green was throwing the party for the release of the uh, 
season two of Robot Chicken DVD. <laughs> now, I also read that I'm on IMDb that you are credited to writing one of the episodes of Silverhawks. Is that true? No. It's weird. IMDb is strange. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they don't really let you... Um, they don't let you... The, the editing is very, very weird. You can add stuff in your resume if you want, if you've got your own password and everything, but... They don't let you edit or, or add. It's, it's odd. It's like, well, we have to confirm with the studios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they have me. They have me as writer of one thing. They have me. Uh, I get I get Google uh, notices about uh, having written this uh, series of business journals that I narrated but never wrote. I think that you know what happens. I know of a, of, a, of, a, of an actress when she was a little girl got hired to be on the set uh, of a Texaco commercial and um, was uh, was told, well, you know, the client wants the little boy. We're really sorry. But, and somebody put her on the cast list. She didn't appear in the commercial. <laughs> somebody put her on the cast list either because they were mean to the little girl and kicked her off the set uh, or because she made a mistake. And she ended up getting about $50,000 in residuals. Oh, the reality man. of it is the, the payer in this case, Texaco and its ad agency had uh, exactly one year, 365 days, to claim the money back. Hmm. And they didn't, and so this little girl ended up paying for a couple of years. Nice. <laughs> having, having gotten the false credit like I got as writing one of the episodes. Now, um, do you still do the competitive storytelling? Oh, yeah, you bet. In fact, it's kind of growing. Um, started in New York about 14 years ago with a, a writer who's a thriller writer, a fairly successful mid-list uh, thriller uh, novelist named George Dawes Green, who had a party in his loft in Lower Manhattan, in which he invited his friends, you know, writers and editors, and a few actors probably. Said, you, you, "We're coming to this party, but you have to bring a five-minute story. No notes. You can't read it. You got to tell them here's the theme. You know, broken hearts or ride into the sunset or whatever the theme was." And they all did, and they brought food and drink, and everybody sat, you know, there for two, three hours, uh, one person telling at a time, and I think they they judged it. And it was so fun that everybody said, let's do it again, do it again. And, and Green said, well, I don't want to do it in my apartment again. That was hard work. And so they got a coffee house or a bar that, that wasn't busy from 7.30 to 9.30 on a Tuesday night. And it's grown. So there are five venues in New York, most of them nightclubs or rock and roll clubs or coffee houses. There are three in L.A., one in Chicago, one in Detroit. There's a radio show called the Moth Radio Hour, which is on 65 NPR stations. The Moth podcast uh, is uh, is the number ten podcast on iTunes. Hmm. People apparently love to listen to personal stories, but mm -hmm. it's, it's storytelling and not old fashioned stories. There's the rock veterans talking about getting shot at. There, there was a hooker who got up and told her story about broken hearted love. I mean, you know, unbelievable stuff. And there's three times a month in L.A. and three different nightclubs go in and sign up and have your story prepared in your head and and if you're called you get up and uh, tell it and you're, you're judged and if you win the highest score of the evening you go on to the semi-annual competition at a big rock and roll club called Echoplex in uh, central LA and if you win that out of 10 people then you go to New York to the Moth Ball and perform there for all the stars. Wow. <laughs> now how far have you gotten in the competition? 
I've been in four Grand Slams. Okay. My fifth one uh, coming up uh, February 21st in L.A. And uh, have not won a Grand Slam. Huh. Uh, have won seven uh, uh, slams where, you know, about 150, 200 people crowded to the club and about 25 people with their name in the hat and 10 get called and they all uh, tell their story one at a time. And, you know, people, instead of walking, watching a rock band or watching television, they're watching somebody tell a sometimes embarrassing, sometimes hysterical, sometimes tragic, usually fairly fascinating story of a person's life, true story. Hmm. Uh, then you get called and you go, ooh, gulp. And you get up and uh, you know, hopefully get a few laughs and tell a decent story. It's fun. Yeah, I've never heard of it. It sounds like a, a version of, of stand-up comedy. It, you know, it's funny. The New York Times did an article about it just a few years ago and said The Moth, which is the organization that sponsors these tor- storytelling slams, The Moth is the new stand-up. Mm-hmm. And what they, I think what they really meant is that um, the stand-up scene has kind of deteriorated a little bit in that it's not I mean I, I could be wrong but I've heard a lot of people a lot of stand up say this that unless you do pee pee poo poo jokes constantly yeah. you know you really not going to get laughs and so little the crowds have gotten really uh, kind of raunchy and yeah. silly and, yeah I've noticed that too so uh, a lot of stand up comics do them off because they'd rather tell stories and they can be funny but not 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 have to do a joke every five minutes, and a lot of uh, everybody from from movie writers to office managers to Iraq veterans are, are showing up. But um, it's not like stand up in that you're not writing jokes. I mean, stand up is a joke every twenty five seconds. Yeah, the moth can. I, I actually there was one contest that I almost won, except I was beat up by a guy who told this tragic, tragic, violent story about his family. And we were in the Grand Slam together, and I said, uh, so what do you do for a living? He said, oh, I'm a stand-up comic. Hmm. I said, but, but your story was a, just a killer. It was so sad. And he said, well, you know, it ain't stand-up comedy. It's storytelling. All right, so what do you have coming up next? What are you working on? Well, I'm on the Hyundai campaign with the fabulous Jeff Bridges. That's been going on for a while, where he does the body of the spot, and then I do the tags which is nice and it's funny because on the on the oscars a year ago in uh, uh february 2010 he was up for an oscar and he was all over these hyundai spots the one of the rules of the uh, academy of motion picture arts and sciences is that oscar nominees are not allowed to appear on any commercial messages huh. within 24 hours of the oscars wow so the ad agency that handled the uh, Hyundai account had to pull all the spots that Jeff Bridges' voice was on <laughs> for 24 hours and put me on some, put other guys on others, and uh, then put him back on the air the day after he won his Oscar. <laughs> Leading man. And what else? <clears throat> Taco Bell spots. Oh, it's good. The Taco Bell box box box. That's been playing in foot, all the football games. I, yeah. I, my fantasy is it'll play in the Super Bowl. I'll make a couple of bucks. <laughs> um, what else is coming up? Um, on on I, the ID channel, which is Discovery Investigation, is a show called I Almost Got Away With It. Yes, I've seen that. Which is ongoing, and I, 
I narrate that, and it's really interesting, bizarre stories, and they're hard to, they're getting harder to get, to get because they have to find somebody in jail or somebody who's been paroled, but, I mean, these people generally are not going to be paroled. <laughs> pretty serious crimes, and they have to be able to get the person, get the prison to agree to allow the, shoot, the crew to come in, uh, hopefully get some family members to agree to be interviewed, and and get the story straight. So wow. It, it, it's actually what happened, and then they filmed some recreations of the crimes and of the running away from the law. So that, that's ongoing. That's kind of fun. Hearing uh, at Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank, California, on Sunday, January 30th. <laughs> Echoplex uh, Rock and Roll Club on Monday night, February uh, 21st. As far as voiceovers and games and cartoons, I'm always auditioning for stuff. Um, people say, You don't audition anymore. Of course I do. I mean, there are. So there's so many new people producing oh, yeah. and writing and working for the game companies and, and so on. They have no idea who I am. I mean, if uh, you know, if they were to if somebody to sit them down and, you know, for a half hour, so well, he's the guy. Oh, okay. And nowadays, it seems but, like everything's going to uh, some kind of major celebrity. Well, yeah, celebrities love, especially uh, features like Megamind. I did the trailer campaign for uh -huh. Megamind, which is really nice doing all those TV spots and it's fun but Will Ferrell Tina Fey etc 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 Brad Pitt for goodness sake <laughs> I'm not sure I think cynically a lot of uh, cartoon writers and feature films have said that uh, in, in the stars with divorces and kids they never see that they could finally do something their kid is going to be able to oh, yeah. see and think is cool they can bring him to the studio. But it's fun. I mean, it's fun. It's challenging. You know, animated work is fun. for, for And for, a, you know, a movie stars who are used to being on a set for weeks, if not months, uh, to be able to go into a studio for a few hours on a couple of occasions and get paid really decent money and then be able to have this at Thanksgiving with Grandma and Grandpa and, and your estranged children yeah, that was really cool. I love you after all. <laughs> so, and obviously it brings in the bucks to the studios. Mm -hmm. 3D and with the voice of Brad Pitt. So, whether that actually works, whether it brings in an audience, I don't know. Yeah. Big names do, but they don't get to see their faces. They just yep. hear their voices and... Oftentimes they're playing a character that's unrecognizable. Almost like Justin Timberlake as um, Boo Boo Bear, you know, Yogi Bears. Exactly. You, you don't even know who he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But um, he did a great job in the social network. Yeah, yeah. So, but, you know, it's, it's true. And in terms of ongoing series, I don't think, the, well, there are fewer and fewer ongoing cartoon series. Yeah. Uh, compared to what was going on in the 80s. It was just, there was so much more going on more and more games but these games I mean the the, uh, the big games the Grand Theft Auto 4 was I think it was an 85 million dollar game wow which is like a major major motion <laughs> picture and um, so they do have some celebrities uh, for the name but there's so much work to be done and it's a peculiar uh, craft voiceover acting is a peculiar kind of craft and 
they tend to find that people who do it on a daily basis can get it done and get uh, you know are just more efficient with their time and less confused and less emotional about it and less uh, sort of erratic. Whereas actors who don't do a lot of voiceovers uh, may have beautiful voices and interesting personalities, but, but tend to not want to go in day after day or week after week to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, uh, <clears throat> cartoons that are on a daily or weekly basis. I mean, you know, for instance, to Simpsons, those people have become celebrities, but yeah. they certainly weren't celebrities. They were just journeyman voiceover people. And I think that's true with Family Guy. Those are just, you know, they were just <clears throat> a couple of people writing the show and then regular journeyman voiceover people. No, no big names. Now they've become names because of the show. Listen, Lady J, you better get your battle gear on because Cobra's on their way. Then bring up the net and go to hitrockbottom.org right now. That's H-I-T-R-O-C-K bottom.org. Hit rockbottom.org right now. Because we can't get out of here. Because the safety lock is busted. And we're going to have to blow this joint. And knowing 